0: so much, oh.
1: you like travel, Well, it's not just about sights to see and places to go. We're going to talk with one of the top travel writers in the world who wants us to think about it a little differently, to use travel as a way to unlock passions, to celebrate our differences, and take pride in our similarities. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Yep, we are
2: about to meet a guy by the name of Pico Iyer, who is a novelist uh, who explores strange and different cultures to discover that We're really a lot more alike than we think we might be. And then we're going to talk with Lise DeGeyer, who at the age of four survived a fire that left her horribly disfigured. She's now a psychologist and has a whole different understanding of what it means to believe that true beauty is what's on the inside and basketball sports casting icon dick vital on a difficult and painful fight that he's endured against cancer i visited with dick at his home for an enlightening a rare and emotional conversation with a broadcasting legend ordinary people extraordinary lives this is growing bolder
1: Do you have any time off coming up? Where are you going to go? Probably as close to paradise as you can get, right? So, where is that? I'm Bill Schaefer, this is Growing Boulder, and we're about to talk about that with someone who spent 50 some odd years trying to find it, and I'll be darned if he didn't come up with a book that well, opens our minds and our hearts to what it is we're really looking for. He's written over a dozen other books, and every time somebody asked me this week, hey, who are you going to have on, when I would say Pico Iyer, they'd immediately say, oh, my gosh, this guy is amazing. And I think we're about to find out why. Maybe you've seen one of his TED Talks. He's written for Time Magazine and the New York Times. And his latest book is called The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. So here is Pico Iyer. How are you, Pico? I'm just so happy to be with you, Bill. Thank you very much for those kind words. Well, we're even happier because (laughs) really you have been greatly anticipated by people out there because what you write and what you talk about really cuts through. I think it's because you're considered a travel writer, but what you really write about is humanity. Exactly. That we're only really as rich as our inner life. And, you know,
3: I have lots of friends, as you do, who are very angry They'll fly to magical Tibet and they'll complain about the food. So really, a a physical destination is only as rich as what we can bring to it. And that's only as rich as how much we have gathered inside ourselves,
1: I think. Does it take changing our scenery for us to be able to get in touch with our inside self? I
3: don't think so. And I learned that. And I think many people did during the pandemic. I was stuck in one place here in my mother's house in California, and I was never short of wonder and beauty. I started taking walks on the road behind my mother's house. Usually early in the morning, the sun was rising over a ridge, flooding the mountains with golden light, the Pacific in the ocean in the distance. I realized, my heavens, this is as beautiful as something I'd go across the world to see. But I'd sleepwalked past it because it was in my backyard. My parents have lived for 50 years on that property, and I'd never walked to the end of the road 20 minutes away till lockdown necessitated. And I'm sure many of your listeners and friends can relate to that. The pandemic reminded us you don't have to go far to be moved.
1: So the title of the book is The half Known Life. Can you talk a little bit about what is The half Known Life? It has two meanings. The first is, I think, in this age of
3: information, we often know less about the rest of the world than ever before, least of all about the countries we hear most about, North Korea, Iran, Cuba, Yemen, Jerusalem. So I make it my, my business to try and visit them and to give them a face and a voice and remind us how much we don't know. But the second is the things that really determine our lives, falling in love suddenly being closed down by a pandemic, having your house burnt to the ground in the forest fire has happened to me, being moved to tears by a beautiful scene. All of those are things we can't begin to explain. And I think our lives are shaped by what we do with what we can't understand.
1: I'm glad you said that because I think that if there is a thread that seems to run through many of your works, it's that no matter where you are, life really for everyone, it's about hardship and challenges. And it seems like you look for ways that we can find happiness or fulfillment within that. And I bring that up because you do spend time talking about North Korea and Iran, where I think most of your readers would think, wow, there's no paradise there. And yet,
3: uh, Iran is the place that gave us the word paradise. And I remember one night in Iran, I was in the desert city of Yazd, which I'd never heard of before. And I walked out of my hotel room, and it was a warm evening, fragrant with flowers, with lights in the trees and the sound of running water. And I was ushered to a divan where I stretched out, and a smiling waiter brought me slices of sweet watermelon and strong tea, beautiful people all around murmuring sweet nothings. Goodness, that was as close to an earthly heaven as anywhere I've been, even though Iran is famously a place of strife and and great difficulty. And so 20 hours after lockdown was announced in March 2020 here in California, my poor mother, who was 88, was rushed into the hospital in an ambulance. She was losing blood very quickly, and I flew over from Japan to be with her. And especially during those first six months together, I was thinking, just as you said, Bill, the world is difficult, there's never any shortage of hardships, but how can we find calm and clarity and inspiration, even in these difficult moments? And I think it's there to be found.
1: Interesting that you've mentioned your mom twice so far in this interview. You and your mom, actually, you guys had many adventures together, mostly late in her life. And I guess, would you say that one thing she taught you is that travel is ageless? (laughs)
3: Yes, and the world never gets old, and at some level, we never get old if we have the right spirit, as you know. So yes, my mother was widowed when she was 64. I was her only child, and so I asked her, what are the places you dreamed of as a little girl? And she mentioned, uh, spiritedly, (laughs) Easter Island, Cambodia, Syria, and Jordan. And I said, every New Year, let's go together to one of these places you've always dreamed of to make the new year memorable. And also, as soon as we're out of the house, our relations are are changed. When we're at home, we're pretty much in this kind of sitcom routine. I'm always five years old. She's always the mom I'm trying to rebel against. When we're sharing an adventure, we're on the same side of the table and really joined forever. So we had these wonderful trips. And then a little later, I'd always been skeptical of cruise ships. And then I thought my mother said she wanted to go to the in a passage in Alaska. So I took her on a cruise. Within one day, I found how wonderful cruise ships are. And then in the following three years, we went all around the Holy Land. We went across the Baltic to St. Petersburg and we went around the Caribbean. And on some of those trips, my mother was 80 and many of the people on the ships were older than she is. And just every morning flocking out into the world to enjoy this place, maybe they would never see again. So it was really an instruction and an inspiration for me.
1: And what a gift on so many levels. One is just the intergenerational communication that you guys had. I'm sure you learned a lot about what it's like to be in that stage of life from spending that time with her.
3: Yes, exactly, because I'm going to be there. I mean, every parent is a cautionary tale and an inspiration to the children who I hope I will one day be 90 years old. And as you say, I, I hope I will have as much. Spirit as my mother and recently with my wife I've been traveling on cruise ships a lot and there were often elderly people there and the beauty of it is as you said there's so much to learn from them both about the wisdom they've gained from experience and the experiences they've had in the world I live in Japan and on a cruise ship I'll meet people who remember Japan in 1945 or 1952 and then living history books and encyclopedias it's a, there's never a dull conversation I think I've had on one of those ships.
1: We're talking with renowned travel writer, Pico Iyer, and we haven't even mentioned places to go <laughs> or anything yet. Because that, But that's what draws people to you, because you're more than a destination. You're more than a recommendation on a good restaurant. You really teach us how to use travel to, number one, to understand other cultures and other people, and then that reflects to our own selves and our own culture. Is that, is that accurate?
3: That's a wonderful way of putting it. I would say I travel to restore my sense of humanity, both because it gives me hope in humanity, and secondly, because suddenly Iran and North Korea are just not not just names on a map or scary places in the headline, they're living people and voices and faces, probably not so different from the ones I know around, around me here. And it's interesting, I think, because I've been lucky, as you said, to travel for almost 50 years, when I was young, I went to a lot of the places on the travel agents' posters, Bali and Tahiti and the Seychelles, true paradise places. But I thought, well, they're paradise for me. I'm here for two weeks. They're probably real life for the people in them. And so it was a reminder, maybe paradise isn't always an external place, but it's something that we carry inside ourselves that we have to find
1: right here, right now. We all have this debate in our own minds uh, that we go back and forth on all the time, that people are people. We're essentially the same no matter where you are. Is that what you have found? It is. What I've found is that when I'm sitting
3: here in California, if I think about Syria or Jerusalem or Kashmir, I remember everything that's different about them. And then I get off the plane in Damascus or Havana or Tehran or anywhere, and the people I meet are worried about their children or they're complaining about the economy, they're at odds with their government. They sound just like the people I meet here in the United States. So there's no question that our politics and our cultures and our ideologies constantly dividing us. But at some deeper level, especially during the pandemic, I think everyone on the planet was dealing with the same fears and the same anxieties. And I'm always reminded that if I walk down the street and I see somebody fall down, I'll instinctively reach a hand towards her. And I'm not noticing if she's black or white or Christian or Muslim. There she is, just a human being in need. And I think travel brings us back to that great thing that we do share.
1: And that is such a great message because the only thing that really divides us is the politics at the very top that really doesn't touch a lot of our lives or the the, the very tip of the culture that we're really, we're really the same underneath. And it's, it's a message that we all really need to hang on to. I, I can't help but think of myself. Uh, the way I used to travel, you know, in my younger days. And and as you said, you've been traveling for a half a century. How how is travel, even from your perspective, how do you approach it differently now that you're in your mid-60s? Do you look for something different? Are you struck by different things? What's a good trip for you?
3: Well, I like revisiting places the way I like revisiting old friends. You know, you can dispense with preliminary surfaces. You don't have to introduce yourself. And for example, I've been going to Cuba for 35 years now and it's constantly changing and I'm constantly changing and the relationship between us evolves and grows. And of course, I'm really excited to see somewhere for the first time, just as the pandemic was dawning, I was sailing around Antarctica and it was beyond anything I believed or imagined. But you don't have to go far to be transformed. And during the pandemic, I suddenly, for the first time, discovered my own hometown here where my parents live and found a beach 10 minutes away I never knew existed. And now I take a walk along that beach every day. So the world is truly inexhaustible.
1: It really is. And one of the the second half of the title of your book is The Search for Paradise. What did you learn and what did your search turn up for you? Well,
3: that paradise can be found in the middle of real life and in the face of death. And I remember one time, I'm of Hindu origin, my parents are both from India, I was standing in Varanasi, the holy city of Hinduism, and I was basically freaked out. So there, were, there were flames in the north and the south, reducing dead bodies to ash, there were naked ascetics strutting around, there were people delightedly... Drinking in waters are said to be 3,000 times beyond the maximal level, safe for consumption. It's a very intense, shocking scene. And I heard somebody call my name, and it was two Tibetan Buddhist monks, one an elderly Tibetan, one a younger American. And the American said, look at all this. Isn't it glorious? This is reality. This is birth and death and everything in between. This is what we have to embrace. And I was startled a little, but I was also humbled because he was right. Even in this scene of maximal congestion and unsettleness, that's the life we have to live in. And that's where we have to find our hope. And he was beautifully finding great hope and inspiration in this most clamorous, chaotic place.
1: That is a perfect Pico Iyer take to help us (laughs) look beyond, you know, the palm trees and the resort hotel to find what really is important. And and that does remind me, I think it's been almost 10 years now since The Art of Stillness, which is one of the most powerful books that I've read of yours. And it seemed like the last thing a world traveler would be drawn to (laughs) that you have learned we all have so much to gain from something we never are, which is silent So let's talk a little bit about the power of silence. Silence has been really my great teacher in life. I go on
3: retreat with a group of Benedictine monks, so I'm not a Christian, four times a year, sometimes for weeks on end. And I learned from their example, and of course they come from a beautiful tradition, but it's really the silence that clarifies me, liberates me, humbles me. Silence is non-denominational. It's not making divisions between humans. And the silence I'm seeking is not just an absence of noise. It's, it's a presence of something um, very, very powerful. The other thing I should tell you, Bill, is that you've kindly read about lots of my travels, but for every two-week trip I take to Sri Lanka, I spend two months back at home writing my account of it. And those two months are spent sitting absolutely still in silence at my desk. So I'm grateful that the job of a writer involves spending long time in silence. And the reader may just see my, my travels and imagine I'm constantly on the road, but probably 95% of my time is spent at my desk thinking about my travels, trying to make sense of them and enjoying the great blessing of having to go nowhere except in my memory and imagination.
1: See, that's so interesting. I think silence is great if you do fill yourself up with experiences to think back on. I, I was going to ask you, do you, think we, do you think we find greater peace through isolation or through exploration? No, such a beautiful question. Exploration, connection,
3: communication. And I think that was what was in my mind when I invited my mother to travel because she just lost her beloved husband, her hero for 47 years. I'm living very far away. And I thought she could end up very isolated, feeling there's nothing to look forward to. And so by ensuring that every new year we would have a trip to share to the place that she'd long dreamed of, I was hoping to to offer an an answer to that. And I should say that on one of our cruises, we delightedly came to Florida and uh, spent time in Palm Beach, I believe, and enjoyed a very nice movie and some good meals there. And just the sense that uh, being connected with me, being connected with the world, meeting new friends and seeing places, what better? Um, My mother would inevitably be spending a lot of time alone at home, but at least she always knew There was a place to go to and she had all these places to remember and all her photographs to look back through of the places she dreamed of as a little girl. And probably as a little girl growing up in India in the 1930s, she never dreamed she would get to St. Petersburg or Easter Island. There she was, Easter Island on the first day of the new millennium. We greeted the new century (laughs) surrounded by those stone faces.
1: And what a beautiful gift to be given by your son, by and what a great life memory for you to be able to do that for your mom. So, folks, travel is family. It's 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 like it's like nothing else. Uh, this will be our, our last question, Pico. And I usually just throw it out to guests to say what you know, let us know what they really think their message is. But uh, I, I think I think if I can read you right. Is if paradise means peace and fulfillment, the question is, how do we find it and how do we do it in a way that brings us closer together instead of being so divided? Is, is that basically the message that, that you hope we get?
3: Exactly. Find that part of ourselves deeper than our thoughts or our ideas, because our thoughts and ideas usually tend to divide us. I believe in uh, this religion. I hold to this party. I have this position on this issue. That's only going to lead to contention. But deeper than that is something that's much more spacious and open-ended. And the more we can be rooted in that, and that was the message of the art of stillness, the wider and happier we can become. And I do feel that most of us have the capacity for finding happiness in our lives, that even during the pandemic, the whole world was sharing the same circumstances, but everybody made different use of it, and some people found unexpected pleasures there, and some people just found frustrations but that 's almost up to us to do that
1: boy, th- this was fantastic. I, see what i mean folks it, it's It's like he travels n- not the world but the human soul, and all of his books they're enlightening in a spiritual, philosophical, and introspective kind of way. And I think it's why he connects so deeply with so many people out there. His name is Pico Iyer. His website is Pico Iyer Journeys. That's P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R Journeys.com. What a great conversation with a great person. Up next, we're going to meet a woman whose face was horribly, horribly burned in a fire. How she learned to make people see the beauty within, and how we all can do a better job of that, too. This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
2: Calibrate. People who can't lose weight are often focused on willpower instead of biology. The Calibrate Metabolic Reset combines GLP-1 medication, one-on-one video coaching, and a holistic curriculum to help members lose 15% of their body weight on average. And Calibrate guarantees results. More information at joincalibrate.com.
1: Well, how many times do things happen, bad things, bad things that leave you frustrated, exasperated, wondering, what do I do now? Wondering if there even is a way forward and questioning if the effort it will take you to get there is even worth it. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And you know that old adage that there's always somebody out there who's got it worse than you? Well, I think we're about to prove that that's true, because you will wonder how our next guest ever found the courage the strength, or even the will to push forward. But man, thank goodness she did, because what an amazing life, dedicated to making a difference for so many others. She is a doctor of clinical psychology and the author of the book, Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. So let's say hi to Lise DeGuerre. Lise, how you doing?
4: I'm well. Thank you so much for having me today, Bill. I'm really happy to be with you.
1: I'm glad you're happy because I have to tell you, it's kind of a double-edged sword, you know, for me, even thinking of asking you to go back and relive what had to be the most difficult time in your life. But yet you you talk about this for a living in an effort to make life better for others.
4: Yes, yes. I was um, severely burned in a fire at the age of four under. Fairly extraordinary circumstances. Uh, My family of four was on vacation. My mother decided it was time to start cooking dinner and she rummaged around this little cabin for something she thought was lighter fluid. And with me standing right next to her, she poured the lighter fluid on the coals, went to light them, they didn't light. And then she grabbed that can again, which turns out to have been a highly flammable household solvent. And again, with me, her little four-year-old standing right next to her, she poured them on the coals, went to light it, and it exploded all over my mother and myself, blocking off any exit out. And my mother um, was a very bright and gifted woman who probably should not have been a mother. And in that moment of panic, she realized there was one way out, which was to uh, run through the fire and down into the nearby lake. And she saved herself. But she left me in the fire. But luckily, my father was able to just spy me through the wall of flame. And and he ran around and he he was able to reach up and pull me through this fence. And I was just small enough to fit through the fence. And he threw me in the lake and I was saved. But that began... um, Basically, a lifetime of surgeries, which were brutal, and um, a lifetime of being, at the time, extremely disfigured as a child, bullied, teased, mocked, rejected, and a lot of suffering.
1: And Lisa, I'm sure that the, the, the physical scars... May only be a fraction of what you felt that you've had to deal with. Because when people hear your story, you know, I think everybody will ask you, well, what happened? And we kind of get stuck in that moment. And as horrible as that day was, it's all the days that followed that were probably far worse. You mentioned the bullying in school. And every time you look in the mirror, it's a reminder you lived that life, you lived that accident 24 7 for so long. Um, you know, other people that, you know, if we have a bad arm or a limp or, uh, you know, it's something else that we can kind of hide, but you had nowhere to hide. How much more difficult did that make life?
4: You know, you are right that um, the, the life of a of a burn survivor is incredibly challenging on a Maybe not a 24-7 basis, but absolutely a daily basis. The physical pain, if you've ever been burned, is extraordinary. And the emotional pain and the social rejection can be really tough. I will say, and this is, you know, the other part of my story, which you sort of alluded to, I am really good at finding the silver lining in things, which I think is a great resilience skill is to be able to notice what's good and not just notice what's bad. So some of the many silver linings in my situation were that I had the best burn care in the world. And I was surrounded by a team of people who were incredibly caring and there for me in a way which, quite frankly, my own mother was not able to be. So. There were gifts in this situation. And the other gift I would say is that I have been befriended and helped by many, many people. And, you know, when you're burned and you look different, only certain people are attracted to you. But those people tend to be incredibly kind, quality people and I attribute a lot of my you know surviving and thriving to the many many people who stepped in to help me throughout my life.
1: How did your parents react in the days weeks months years that followed that I can imagine the you know the guilt and the just the the horror of watching you go through everything that you did had to just be so much more magnified on them?
4: So you would imagine that, Bill. But my parents were quirky people. They, I, I know on the positive side, they were gifted um, musicians and brilliant and um, cultured. And on the negative side, they were very self absorbed people in the late 60s and early 70s at a time of kind of uh, freedom. And they really embraced that. And they were not about being parents. My father, more than my mother, my, my father showed up for me more than my mother, but they were not actually, <laughs> they were not racked with guilt and remorse. They were really pretty absorbed with themselves.
1: So, so this is a, quite, quite a, an interesting thing because not only as a four-year-old were you thrust into this world of, of trauma and recovery, but you basically were thrust into it all on your own except for, as they say in the films, you know, the kindness of strangers. So you talked about your attitude helping you get through and resilience. Is resilience something that you're born with? Or was this something that just came out of the, the, the a survival instinct?
4: So, in addition to um, being a burn survivor, I'm a psychologist, and uh, this is where my two passions have met. My study of psychology, which I definitely came into the field extremely interested in knowing why some people like me survive the odds, and why some people like my brother. Um, tragically did not. I'll leave that there. That's in my book. So what is it that some of us thrive and some of us do not? And the science on resilience is so interesting. Resilience is mostly, not entirely, but mostly it's a mindset. And it's a mindset that you might be naturally inclined to. I I think that I was, but it's also a mindset that we can learn. And that's what I've been doing over the last two years or so is literally speaking all around the country on how everyone can become either somewhat more resilient or a lot more resilient by embracing certain things. So, for example, I mean, there's a bit more to this, but I'll say embracing the capacity for gratitude which might seem like kind of superficial, but it turns out is gratitude, there's nothing superficial about gratitude. Gratitude literally changes our brain chemistry. And there's more to that mindset that we all can learn and develop. That's the good news.
1: You know, I'm sure our listeners, just like the people that you talk to in your lectures, they're, they're, if they're anything like me, they're saying, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I could do it. I, I, I don't know if I had. I used up all my resilience trying to pay the bills, struggling in my family relationships, dealing with life as it is. So how do we tap into that resource?
4: So the first thing I would say is don't count yourself out. I think a lot of people, if they haven't been tremendously challenged, they think, I could never do that. I could never survive that fire. I could never survive being disfigured. But you know, if that's your life, most of us figure out a way. It turns out the science says that two-thirds of people are capable of resiliency And I'm going to say that one third that we're counting out, even they could get better at it. So how do you get better at it? Certainly one way is through psychotherapy. Again, I'm a psychologist. Not only am I a psychologist, but I have also been in therapy many times in my life. And it helped me tremendously. So there is help out there. And I encourage anyone who thinks like oh I'm I'm in a horrible horrible hole I don't think I can get out of it to please seek help because I bet you can get out of it. And I encourage anyone who is loving somebody who is really floundering to have hope.
1: That's so important. I mean so many of us out there, so many of us, you, it, it, your scars showed. There are a lot of us that have scars that don't. We're lonely. We're kind of isolated or depressed or just so sad dealing with grief or heartache or depression. And sometimes it just doesn't seem like there's any way out. But you're telling us that there is.
4: I think there is almost always a way out but that people put up blinders and they're not seeing it. And I don't mean they mean to put up blinders, but they do. So this mindset of resilience that I'm referring to, I'll just briefly go into it. So think of the mnemonic goals plus m M&M. The G in goals stands for gratitude. The O is for optimism, which is not saying, oh, everything's going to be great, but it's the capacity to say, It might turn out okay. It might. And when you have the capacity to think somewhat more optimistically, the A in goals stands for active coping, which is the ability to take a look at your problem and say, is there anything I can do about this? And start to do it. The L in goals stands for love. That's the relationships around us, which may not be perfect. Goodness knows my relationship with my mother had many problems, but I was loved by other people, not just my mother. There's love around us usually. We might be focusing on the relationships that aren't working, but usually there's someone else out there who loves you. The S in goal stands for social skills, the ability to connect, to make relationships, to keep them. And the M&M stands for meaning-making the ability to look back and say, well, that was hard. What did I learn from this? So that's the mindset. I know I went very quickly through it, but that's the mindset. And every one of those skills can be developed and learned.
1: You know, we were talking earlier, Lise, that everybody, every one of us has things that we need to deal with in life. And we talk about mental health and emotional health as if it's only needed if we're seriously broken and i think that's where the stigma comes in every year we go to the doctor when we're well wouldn't we all benefit from some kind of an annual well-being assessment too
4: absolutely and i it is really a shame that people don't tend to land in a psychologist's office like mine unless they're really suffering and i wish that people could say well how do I want to make my life better this year, as opposed to, oh, things are so bad, I guess I have to talk to somebody now. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's like saying, like, you're not going to go to the dentist until all your teeth are rotted away. Like, it is a really unfortunate mindset. And the stigma about mental health services, I honestly I think it's getting better. But I think it's got a long way to go.
1: You know where it could really help, and people don't think about it this way, is aging. You know, Growing boulders is all about living life to the fullest as we age, even in the face of decline, of loss, of pain, and uncertainty, which are things we all go through as we get older. So is it possible, and how do we, how do we make aging uh, be one of the best times of our lives?
4: Yeah, you know, I've worked with a lot of People and their 60s and 70s, 80s, even 90s. And I think that, first of all, When you get older, it is important to focus on what you have as opposed to what you don't have. And again, this gets back to gratitude, if you remember. So what do you have when you get older? Well, you probably don't have a size four figure and you probably, you are no longer running marathons if you ever did. God knows I never did. But what do you have? You know, hopefully you have family. Hopefully, you have friends. If you've lost some friends, hopefully, you have the capacity, the interest to make new friends. Hopefully, you have some wisdom. Hopefully, you have some hobbies, right? So to focus on what you have as opposed to what you maybe no longer have. I think it's incredibly important as we get older. The people I know who are thriving in their 80s and 90s are people who never gave up on making friends. Because, you know, as you get older, we lose our friends, right? You know, our friends die and our families die and so we have to still connect with other people in order to um feel loved and the people i know who are happily in those later years are people who you know they still play bridge and my aunt betty god bless her she's i think she's 97 years old she still plays bridge every week and they have younger friends and they still are trying to learn new things and embracing life as it is as opposed to focusing on everything that they've lost.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Social engagement may, in fact, be the best medicine out there. Uh, no matter how old we are, for for living a fulfilling life, it's a great point. And I do want to give you the chance to wrap things up here because we have covered a lot in a very short amount of time. What What's your message? what What do you hope that we learn from all that you've been through?
4: So. My book, Flashback Girl, is very much about the story of being the most unfortunate person you would have ever seen in your life and how I went from that to having an incredibly blessed and happy and fulfilling life. It took 50 years, but I did it and other people can do it too. And that's what I'm hoping that people come away from um, this talk, or or maybe reading the book, is this sense of you too can be the most unfortunate person you know, and you can make it. And you might know people in that position, and they can make it too. And wrapped in that story is a lot of humor, and it's very fast paced, and um, it is designed to bring hope. So that's my hope that people take away is just. Hope.
1: Well, that is so needed, and it is such a necessity. And this is one of the few books out there that will touch everybody, that you will relate to in some way, because there's a little bit of Lisa Deguerre in all of us that just want to be accepted, that want to be out there, you know, flying with our wings spread as as wide as possible. And that's what makes it such a strong book. It's called Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. More information at Lise Deguerre. That's L I S E D E G U I R E dot and uh, our thanks for putting herself out there uh, to help make the rest of us better to Lee Gear. Thank you so much.
2: Iconic ESPN analyst Dick Vitale is cancer-free after several lengthy and difficult battles. I sat down with Dick for an emotional and revealing conversation. You'll hear that next on Growing Boulder.
1: Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com/podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. If you watch any television at all, chances are you are familiar with Dick Vitale. He's one of the most beloved basketball analysts in the business because of his knowledge, but also because of his passion for the game and his heart for those who play it and love it. It was devastating to learn that he had cancer, lymphoma, and melanoma, and his survival was uncertain. Vital faced his prognosis the way he faces everything else with energy, with enthusiasm, and with positivity. As he recovered, he invited us into his home to share what his experiences taught him. This is the story of Dickie V. There you go. go. In nineteen seventy-nine, Dick Vital had just been fired by the NBA's Detroit Pistons and was looking for a college job when ESPN called.
5: ESPN. What the hell is ESPN? Sounds like a disease. I never heard of it. Never heard of it. So I'm not interested. I said, because I really want to get back where I belong college coaching. He resisted,
2: but ESPN persisted. Forty-four years later, Vital has worked more than 1,000 games. He's been inducted into 14 Hall of Fames, written 14 books, and appeared in dozens of movies, commercials, and video games. He's loved by millions, but few know the extent of his recent health struggles.
5: It's been tough. It's been a tough, tough year, uh, but I've had so much support. The love I've received from so many fans, the prayers, my family, my wife's such a caregiver, and my daughters really got me through, got me through some tough times. It
2: all began in late
5: 2021
2: with multiple surgeries for melanoma.
5: Oh, my God, what I looked like after you. Take a look of, of, of a Tyson and a Mayweather together pounding on you. I mean, I, my face was, I went through seven procedures, seven, to get this to where it's at today. All right, that was one. Then another people don't realize I had bile duct problems. At first, they diagnosed, and they thought it was bile duct cancer, which is a very tough cancer to deal with. And fortunately for me, after scans, they determined that it wasn't bile duct, but it was lymphoma, which is treatable, which is curable. I never thought that I would be jubilant here and I have lymphoma, but I did. He didn't
2: have bile duct cancer, but he did have bile duct blockage, which required several surgeries, all while undergoing chemotherapy for lymphoma, his second cancer diagnosis in less than six months.
5: Then what really crushed me, probably more than anything, I lost my voice. I couldn't speak.
2: He had a growth on his vocal cords that could become cancerous if left untreated. In between bile duct surgeries and multiple rounds of chemotherapy, he had two surgeries on his vocal cords and was unable to speak a word for four months.
5: I was grateful for my wife. She loved every moment.
2: She finally got a chance to speak. As his throat was healing, doctors ordered a comprehensive set of scans looking for any signs of cancer.
5: They went through your entire body and he came out and I said, Dick, you're cancer free. And I just uh, I burst out in tears, to be honest with you, because it's been tough.
2: While still healing, Vital was honored with the Jimmy V. Award for Perseverance at the 2022 ESPYs. The award is named for the late Jim Valvano, Vital's friend and former broadcast partner at ESPN. It was Vital who helped Valvano to the stage at the very first ESPYs where he delivered his famous don't give up, don't ever give up speech. It was Valvano's words and those of his own mother that gave Vital the strength to endure.
5: Never ever, she said to me, never ever believe in can't. Don't allow can to be part of your life. Simple advice, simple. I've applied that everything. day. I've heard her words while I was laying in a bed doing chemo, depressed at night. Heard my mom's words and heard Jimmy V's words. Don't give up, don't ever give up. I heard those words over and over giving me that impetus to want to get better. You know, I get very emotional because it was, it's been a, It was a tough eight months, man. doing that chemo. I'm sorry being so you got me so emotional today, man. Uh, just uh, uh you know I, that's why I did, uh, I'm so driven now to, to, before I die to help kids. I really uh want to give as much of, wanna get as much dollars as I can.
2: The Dick Vital Fund for Pediatric Cancer has already raised over $55 million for the V Foundation. And he doesn't just twist the arms of potential donors, he sheds tears with families. I get to know these kids, I get to know these people, and they shouldn't suffer, so I want to give back. How has your past year changed your thoughts about the rest of your life and what still needs to be done?
5: try to make every day count, every moment count to the best of my ability, try to use every day, try to enjoy it as much as I can, because it can be taken away from me so quickly.
2: Vital finds his inspiration every morning speaking to an old photo of his parents.
5: I'm sitting on their lap, I'm about four years old, three, four years old, and I thank them so much Thank him for giving me the greatest gift anybody could ever receive, and it's the gift of love. I had so much love as a child. I grew up with a mom and dad that were uneducated. My parents maybe had a, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade education, but they had a doctorate of love.
2: Now in his mid-80s, Vital is more aware than ever that the clock is ticking, and every day is not just a blessing to be grateful for, but an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of others. And he's not about to waste it.
5: I'm going to simply tell you this, man. As I live my life, I'm growing bolder, baby.
2: Whether you care about sports or not, you've got to be touched by the heart of Dick Vitale. He is the best of humanity and someone we can all strive to be more like.
1: Well, there is a lot going on these days. And when we come back, Mark will let us know what's on his mind and how we can see things from a positive, inspiring, and Growing Bolder perspective. That's next. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, and now it's time to turn things over to Mark Middleton to
2: find out, Mark, what's on your mind? What's on my mind today, Bill, is my gut. And I don't mean the part you can see, but the part you can't see, because one of the hottest topics in medical science really over the past decade has been understanding our microbiome, which is the community of microorganisms, mostly bacteria and fungi that live inside our bodies, and the weird and really kind of creepy part of this is that there are more of these foreign organisms in our body than there are human cells. The latest estimates are that there are about thirty to forty trillion human cells in our bodies and a hundred trillion microbial cells. Now, it might be creepy, but but here's the truth, because we're learning more about this every day. Uh, Our microbiome is critically important to our overall health. Uh, You know, they're not just... Invaders, they are kind colonizers, if you will. Uh, Many autoimmune diseases are related to problems with our microbiome. Our microbiome has a direct impact on aging, our mood, our digestive functions, our cognitive decline. Our microbiome is as individual as our fingerprints. And here's the deal and the reason I've been thinking about it and the reason I'm mentioning it now. Is that it changes each and every day according to our lifestyle, Uh, you know what we eat, what we think, how much stress we have. So, so here's here's the thing, folks, that we can do to keep our microbiome in shape. It's really the exact same thing we do to keep our our body in shape. We can eat a diverse plant based diet. We lay off processed and high sugar foods. We take antibiotics only when necessary because they wipe out the good bacteria. We manage our stress, and we should consider a probiotic or a prebiotic. Probiotics are live bacteria that are healthful and necessary. Prebiotics are non-digestible fibers that feed the beneficial bacteria in our gut. So pay attention to what, what you're eating because your microbiome is critically important.
1: And the better that works the more of the good stuff that you eat will
2: be absorbed. Isn't that part of it too? Absolutely. Yeah, it's all of it. The good hormones are created by our gut, You know, not by our brain, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of those things. We're learning more and more about how important our overall health and well-being is according to our gut health.
1: I have a gut feeling right now that (laughs) we're just about out of time. Folks, we'll see you right back here again next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you.
4: Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
0: Crimson flames tap through my ears, flowing high and mighty traps. Countless fires. Oh. Stay!